Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to Basically the Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Preisner, and with me in studio today I have a very impressive man. He is the same age as me and makes me feel like I have achieved nothing in my life because he has achieved so much. He has been the Minister for Health during a pandemic. He is now the Minister for Higher Education. Welcome to the studio, Minister Simon Harris. I have had so many requests, genuinely so many requests on Instagram being like, can you please get Simon Harris on? Oh, jeez. Do you feel like a little bit, you, you did kind of turn into a celebrity there for a while during the during the pandemic. Did that feel weird? I, I never thought of it like that, but it, it just felt weird that, weird but really nice actually, that you kind of built up this connection with people because it happened entirely by accident. Um, obviously the pandemic happened, but then I just started kind of talking to people directly. Um, as much for actually my own human kind of mental health and yeah. human connection because I was sitting there in the Department of Health often late into the night and I thought well just maybe I'll let people know what I was at but but what I got completely overwhelmed by was the, the, the when people started talking back to me and the response the that response. I actually got back so like you'd you'd kids from right across the country you know sending me letters letting me know how they were getting on making me pictures of explaining what they were doing for lockdown telling me they were missing their granny and then you'd then you'd people at the complete other end of the age spectrum as well um you know some people send me scarves and you know specially made face masks it was, but it was i know it was lovely because as a as a politician you're always kind of communicating but it was the first time in my political career i actually felt a connection do you know yes, it's very, yeah. very weird and but i think it was because it was such a chaotic time and we needed to wrap ourselves around someone who was speaking sense. And I think there was so much science talk and so yeah. much or not and all this kind of stuff that you speaking directly into Instagram or wherever it sure. was that was like, OK, I understand this. This is an actual man. And for me and a lot of my friends who became fangirls of yours, it's because you're the same age as us. And we're like, sure. we can't even manage our own life. How is this? 33? Well, I you? can't manage mine either. You should. <laughs> you just manage <laughs> the nation. I just manage my job. <laughs> but uh, I know I'm only joking, but... Uh, no, it was, I, I just decided, I, like, I actually learned a huge amount about myself and I learned a huge amount about politics and I think I learned a huge amount about people, actually, um, through all of this, which was, and perhaps the fact that the election was all over, right? So the election was out of the way. I yeah. didn't know what was going to happen next. So there was no politics in it, right? There was, there was no, no one was, no one was campaigning for an election, but that was all done and dusted. And I actually, what I learned from it, and I genuinely learned from it was, if you actually dispense with the rehearsed, dated, 
rotten kind of speaking points that, you know, we all regurgitate as politicians. And you actually just do that, you know, radical thing of just talking as a human being to people. Um, people will respond. And then if you just... If you just tell them it as it is, or as you understand it, as yes, uh, you know what I mean. Like so, I, I think I, that's what it was. I'm not a public health expert. I'm not a doctor. I was learning all this as well, and all I was just trying to do whether was whether it was good news or bad news, and it was often bad news. Was just kind of level with people and say, look, here's what they've told me. Here's what it means, and it's here's everything. Great, get through yeah. It. I think we've really appreciated that honesty. So take us back a little bit. Sure. When did you did you grow up wanting to be a politician? <laughs> is that possible? I, I grew up wanting to be a vet. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but uh, that's what I did my, my first year project in secondary school on. Uh, loved animals, wanted to be a vet. And then what often happens to a lot of people in politics, regardless of their politics, is something happened in my own life that kind of sucked me into politics. So my my little brother, as I always call him, he's not that little anymore. He's about 25, I think. But my younger brother, uh, Adam, was born um with what we termed at the time Asperger's syndrome, kind of high functioning autism. And I, I'm the oldest, there's my sister in the middle, then my brother. And I suppose our family was left with this kind of bundle of joy without knowing what the hell autism was, what Asperger's was, how to deal with it. And as a kind of moody, opinionated teenager in Greystones, I decided, to, my parents were too busy trying to look after Adam. I decided to, to kind of get involved. So I, I called a public meeting in my hometown. It sounds like such a weird thing. I called him. It, it sounds, I'm just imagining you with a bell. saying these things. Yeah, like, oh my God, I a random teenager. But I called a public meeting in my hometown and there was a simple question of, <laughs> are you living with anyone with autism? You know, have you any information? Can you help? And it was in this church hall in... Um, How did you organise it? Like Facebook? I'm even trying to remember. No, because it wasn't a Facebook, I don't think. Um, I think we put up a few leaflets and a few posters in the local shop in Greystones. And um, I actually don't remember that, but I yeah. think word of mouth. And I think yeah. we stuck up a few posters and stuff. It was a February. I always remember it was a February. It was really cold. And about 60 people turned up in the hall. Wow. And um, yeah. And, and again, it was really weird because they were people who I lived with in a community with but I didn't know that they too were living with someone with autism on the right. likes anyway long story short we decided that night we were kind of going to help each other out and you know if trade stories as to how different families were coping but also to come together and do some kind of interesting things so a lot of kids with autism have sensory issues and um, you know they maybe couldn't go to the cinema um, back then as other kids could because they might you know might uh, might like the darkness or the too loud or or so, so we actually rented the local cinema in Greystones and had it like as for any families with children with autism we organised different summer camps just kind of random things you do as a community and then we started campaigning we started realising hang on a second like why do our kids or my brother why can't they go to the local school and there was a big new secondary school being built near where I live in Kilkool and we campaigned to make sure that that school had a an autism facility in it. And slowly but surely, I was meeting politicians and I was campaigning and I was kind of getting sucked into the whole political world. Um, eventually, I met Enda Kenny. And um, I always remember Enda Kenny saying to me, he said, you know, you can keep on. He was leader of the opposition. He was traveling around the country meeting disability groups. And we were one of the groups he met. And, you know, I was giving him what was was about all the problems in the world and you know again moody opinionated teenager and he kind of said to me you know you can kind of keep on giving out about politicians or you can get involved and I always remember that um, and I'm always very grateful to him for it so I did so I joined Young Fine Gael and I started campaigning and, and would you have been history. a Fine Gael family like or was it just that he said that to you that made you go yeah. that's the party so we'd be a, I suppose traditionally like like a lot of families it would have been a civil war family so my dad's side so my parents were apolitical right um, okay. like they were kind of involved in the 
community, the parents associations, but not politics. Um, my dad's family traditionally voted kind of Fianna Fáil. Mm-hmm. My mom's family traditionally Fine Gael, grew up in an apolitical household. Like the idea, if you had to tell my parents or my brother or my sister that like we'd be involved in politics, that would have just seemed bizarre yeah. um, before we took the plunge. But it's, so it's a very long-winded way of saying it's what happens to a lot of people. You find an issue and you, you, you try to make a difference on that issue and before you know it, you're in too deep. <laughs> and what made you then decide, okay, now I'm actually going to run for, in a general election? So, or was that, did you... you so I ran for the council first. So the more, I, the, more, the more I got involved, the more I really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed this idea of it sounds, it sounds kind of naff when politicians say this, but I really did enjoy this idea of kind of mucking in and trying to sort out local issues and working Well, it's very satisfying when you start seeing results is. and you realise you can affect change. That's right. No, that right. And, and like to this day, I, I don't buy this kind of cynical attitude. Like you, you can get stuff done. And I was realising, you know, that we were able to like campaign for skate parks in the community or better dart service. And, you know, you were working with people to, to get things done. Um, and then in 20, I suppose, I suppose in many ways, I probably got elected to the door because of the economic collapse. So in 2011, Fine Gael already had two seats in Wicklow. Um, and I was stuck on the ticket, probably as the sweeper, the no hope or whatever, yeah. you know, the, 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 the token third candidate. Um, but obviously in 2011, there was a massive vote for Fine Gael, the collapse of the economy and all that sort of stuff that preceded it. And uh, I got elected to the door that way. Um, and yeah, then I've been elected um, yeah, three times into the door. Fair dues. And that first time you were elected, that first time you walked into government buildings, were you like, what is happening? Or at that point, were you like, no, I can do this? No, it was, I have a very good friend, uh, a very good friend called, uh, he won't mind me saying, Stephen O'Shea. And Stephen used to work for Lucinda Creighton. And um, Stephen apparently looks a little bit like me. And people used to think I was working for Lucinda Creighton. And the, oh, gas. The ushers used to say to me, you know, oh, yeah, you know, you're collecting like Deputy Creighton's poster. Like they actually genuinely thought I was, <laughs> I was, I was Lucinda Creighton's parliamentary assistant. Um, so it definitely, <laughs> definitely, because I was only, what, 24 and probably looked about 12. Yeah. Um, or I remember I was, because uh, I was the youngest TD on my first day in the doll, which is usually just about kind of getting the photos with your family and settling in and stuff. I was, uh, I was asked to nominate Enda Kenny as Taoiseach, um, which is a tradition that Enda felt strongly about that the youngest TD in the doll stands up and nominates their party leader to be Taoiseach. And I remember standing up and I could actually hear, there's a Miriam Lord column at the time where you could actually hear, she said she hear Fianna Fáil TDs whispering, who's, who's, who's the young who's lad? Who's the child? <laughs> yeah, who's the child, exactly. <laughs> and uh, Now I look back and it, and it just seems like a lifetime ago. And what is, what, uh, so when did you first become a minister then? I became a minister, a junior minister in 2014. With um, responsibility for the OPW, so the Office of Public Works, right? Which is kind of a really, a really interesting job because basically the Office of Public Works is kind of the state's caretaker slash landlord. So you're responsible for all the public buildings, um, so uh, things like Kilmainham Jail, Dublin Castle, um, you know, anything Donnerail, all of these public facilities right across our right across our country. Um, it's a great chance to get out and about and actually see some amazing kind of heritage sites and the importance that they meant to communities and yeah. how they can drive, you know, the local economy, create jobs and the likes in those areas. But also ha- you have responsibility when you're in the OPW for flooding. Oh, wow. And I happened to be the minister for the OPW and I think we had the biggest floods in about 100 years. So I remember, uh, yeah, traipsing around the country in, you probably remember it was, some, it was over Christmas, I think it was in 2015. I remember traipsing around the country around Christmas time just, and it just did not stop raining and going to these communities that were 
Urim, like Bandon and that were destroyed and the devastation. I'm from Mallow, so we know we oh, know our way around flooding. You know, yeah. Exactly. Um, and seeing, yeah, just just meeting people in the most horrific circumstances. So I learned a lot, again, a lot about politics, a lot about people, a lot about communities, because that role, I suppose, brought me right across the country. And at any point were you like, I'm only in my 20s, like this is a lot of responsibility or is the job... Like, are you so supported by civil servants and your team that you're like, actually, we can do this? Yeah, I, I've never been overwhelmed. I don't think by by the job. I'm sure. I'm sure lots of people think I've been overwhelmed by the job, uh, but I've never. I've never felt it because I suppose I kind of compartmentalize life. So if I stopped and thought about it, as you know, Simon Harris back 29 when he was or something, you might go, "Geez, what am I doing?" But actually, I just kind of got on with it, put the blinkers on, just saw it as a job. Um, and you, you tend to be, when you're a minister, you tend to be so busy. Yeah, that you, you can't don't actually stop contemplating. <laughs> yeah, like. <laughs> you, yeah, you don't actually stop and think about, oh, wow. Um, it's only when you it's only when you finish in the roles, as I saw when you came out of health, it's only when, then when you actually realise, oh, wow, <laughs> what a four years that was. And then uh, your first time in cabinet, do you get to, do you get to choose the portfolio? No, 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 definitely. So not. how did that go? Um, so I think that was a surprise to everybody, um, including me. Um, so again, I was going to be a first-time cabinet minister. Um, Leo was obviously the minister for health at the time. Um, the, the then Taoiseach and I decided um, to ask me to take up the to take up the job. And I remember him. I remember I'd met him earlier that day, and he said to me, "No, no, will you be up for? Would you be up for a difficult one? Would you be up for a difficult job?" And this, what did you in mind then? Well, I thought being minister in general was a difficult job. So I said, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, Taoiseach, yeah, absolutely up for a difficult job. And I don't know, there'd been lots of rumours I was going to get like social protection or, you know, you read all these things and yeah. nobody really has a clue. Do you read them? Are you like, oh, God, that's what I'm getting because this person in the Irish Times thinks it. You do read them, but then you realise that person <laughs> in whatever is only hearing has the no same thing you heard from somebody in a car. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's an echo chamber, but you do. And you wouldn't be kind of human probably if you ignored it. But then I remember he, he brought me into his office and... Uh, and I sit down there in the chair and he told me this is the chair Queen Elizabeth sat in and Enda was always very I always felt he was very kind of paternal to me and I always I always felt I owed a lot to him because he gave me a lot of chances and uh, he said no no I need you to take on a difficult job will you do health for me and um, I remember coming out of the Taoiseach's office and Francis Fitzgerald was the next to go in and Francis was a, a, a great friend of mine I'd been her parliamentary assistant back in the day and and I was clearly as white as a ghost and she said to me are, are, you, are you okay um, what did you get? What did you get? And I said, I got health. And she said, no, no, you didn't. <laughs> I said, no, no, I, I did. And she said, oh, oh, you'll be great. <laughs> and then oh, it she went. So it was definitely, it was definitely, I think, There's a shock a vote for of confidence. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And what was the first, so the OPW, you had to deal with the floods. Mm. What was the first big health issue you faced? Or like, how how does that even work? Like, So, I mean, health is just... So, I mean, when you become a minister, I mean, you're basically taken into a department, no matter what ministry it is, and you're you're basically given the briefing book. Um, is that like a Bible? How big is that a, book? It's a Bible. It's also, in health, it's very big. And it's it's basically everything the civil service thinks they need to inform the minister of. Um, is that like, this is an issue in, you so know, they, Port Yunkula, this is happening, yeah, that's so specific? Each or? of the sections of the department and bring what they'd consider to be the significant issues to the attention of a minister. So, when you're going into a place like health, it really takes, it probably takes longer, but it definitely takes like six months to actually get through meeting all the stakeholders, meeting the unions, meeting nurses, doctors, going around visiting the facilities, meeting all your officials. It's just such a massive, massive uh, portfolio. And what I always found in it was, I mean, and this is not a, this is not a, like a, a personal gripe of mine, but there, there were so many brilliant things in health, 
but you always find yourself having to respond to the, to the thing that went wrong. And, and it's again, the same as like at music festivals, people only comment on the toilets if they're awful. No one is go. like, there was really good toilets. It's like, <laughs> it's only the problems that yeah. people see. I like you want, you know, you wanted to, you'd come in every day to, to, to help them. I'm generally this sort of person. You'd come in and you'd say like, you know, let's get this done today. And you'd have drawn up your list of your five things or your 10 things you wanted to tackle today. And then someone then rings. Bang, yeah. Something happens in some hospital in some part of the country. And, and quite rightly, you're the minister and everyone wants to know what you're going to do about it. And um, yeah. And is it down to you to go, OK, this is what I'm going to do? Or do people advise you? Like, how does that, how can you hold the weight of that on your shoulders? No, people, people, people do it. People do advise you. And actually, I think we're, I think we're really well served, actually, by our civil service in, in, in Ireland. I genuinely do. Like, so, again, unless unless you're a minister, maybe you don't get a chance to see this kind of up close and personal. Yeah, so tell but us. You have, like, really, really hardworking, dedicated people who've been working away in their section of the department or on their issue for quite a long number of years. So old. they don't change as the minister they changes. They don't change as the minister changes. But there, there can be, an, and I have a frig- good relationship with my civil servants, but there can and should be a bit of a healthy tension because you're there in the department not to become a civil servant or a spokesperson for the department. You're there to be the people's representative in the department. So sometimes you have to say, yeah, I know that's the way we've been doing things for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years and I understand why, but actually... There's a better. We had an election and there's a programme for government and we now need to do this, that or the other. And there's always has to be a bit of give and take in that, you know. You 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 can't make everything your absolute number one priority. But you could come in and change the priority from the previous Minister for Health. Absolutely. And and the civil servants have to then course exactly. correct, even though they've been working on it for five That's years. That's right. And I always felt that must be a real pain in the neck for the civil service when, you know, if, if, you, if you keep on chopping and changing ministers. And I felt that particularly in health, actually, um, because health is... It health needs is, a continuity needs of a care. Continuity. Like, yeah, no, it really does. And like you'd be launching a 10-year plan knowing, knowing that you're not going to be the minister for 10 years. And what were the, like, the proudest moments you had in health where you're like, I actually achieved this? So I don't think I achieved, I, I don't ever think I achieved anything on my own, but there's, there's three things, I suppose. One, 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 is, one is big and the others seem relatively small, but they mattered to me a lot. So back to why I got involved in politics and disability advocacy and the likes, I used to meet a lot of people who were fighting for their child's right to get a medical card and having to prove their child had a disability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we brought in a law to give every child in receipt of what they call domiciliary care allowance. So a child with a, a disability, an automatic entitlement to a medical card. And that meant that just meant a lot to me personally because I felt this was this was wrong that every couple of years parents were having to kind of have a row with the HSE over whether their child could or couldn't have a medical card. The other one was um was we we, we managed to purchase a drug called Orcambi for people with cystic fibrosis. And we had had a very we kind of had a bad enough record as a country on life expectancy for cystic fibrosis. And thankfully, we've made huge progress long before I was there, right? But like, we now have much improved um, life expectancy and outcomes for people with CF in Ireland. We have such a high rate of it here in our country. And this drug or can be that there was a lot of a lot of pressure on me, a lot of um, campaigning by advocacy groups. And we managed to secure a deal and we managed to secure a really good deal that guaranteed any Irish patient with CF any updated drugs that came out from that company for the next number of years too. So that that meant a lot. And when I'd, I remember getting off an aeroplane, I can't remember where I was going to, back when we were allowed to fly fly places. Yeah, back in that world. Remember that? I remember a a, a woman and a man coming up to me on the plane saying that their grandson had started on on Orcambi and it was going really well and it transformed their their life. I remember walking down him. Mount Street and a man in a van um, 
pulling over and saying he was on our campaign. So, so nice to see the benefits. Yeah. And look, the big the big issue that meant a, a huge image to me was um, was the repeal campaign, um, which I felt was just a defining moment for our society. Um, and again, a campaign that I certainly didn't lead, um, but one that I found myself in a position of doing, having to do two things. One, I suppose one, conduct the referendum campaign and put yeah. forward the case. But, but then two, after the referendum, actually deliver on what we said we'd do and legislate. And I made some very solemn promises to people during that campaign that if you vote yes, here's exactly what we're going to do. And if you vote yes, we're going to bring in the services by the 1st of January, which was which an a ambitious big, time frame, yes. but we achieved it. So, um, yeah, we spent a lot, a lot of time on that. And I think saw saw something really... I, I again learned a lot about politics during that time in the sense that I, I saw a real yearning from people to get involved in campaigning. And actually, I, I sometimes feel... I'm not sure we 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 as a society harnessed that enough for the first time there was all these not only young people but younger people who came forward and wanted to be involved in their democracy and the likes and I felt there was a huge energy and I actually remember at Dublin Castle the day the results were announced. That was an amazing day. I remember people kind of saying to me kind of what's next you know what's next and lots of people have gone on to do the what's next some have joined political parties some have joined other campaigns and other issues but there is still there is still a next so I hope we can I thought we saw you know people tend to dismiss Particularly younger people is kind of not interested in public life and thing, and I think they. I think that's so wrong. Well, that's not my experience yeah, at not all. Mine either. No. It's particularly, and it becomes particularly pronounced when it's sort of a yes/no when it's a referendum, and I saw people taking the momentum that they had from repeal into this current general election, but finding that it was sort of the 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 focus was dissipated because it wasn't a yes or no yeah. and it, they struggled to to know what was the right thing to do because it was so clear what they wanted to do for repeal, but not so clear in a general election. I think that's right. And then I think, look, there's a view from some people in Leinster House kind of on the equality issue. Sometimes I feel that people, some people think, sure, didn't we do that repeal thing? Isn't, is, you know, have we have we done that now? And I'm kind of go, no. That like needs we, to be reviewed, doesn't it? It's being reviewed next year. That needs to be reviewed next year. But we still have a... There's an awful lot more to be done. We still have a complete, incomplete system and society when it comes to equality. Yeah. Like we really do. I mean, like there's so much more that needs to be done. In my, in my current brief, like we still have a situation where our adult literacy rates are really bad. There's people locked out of society because they can't read and write. We have real inequality, both both visible inequality and hidden inequality. Um, we have massive issues with addiction that we don't face up to, and we still stigmatise people in relation in, in relation to that. You know, you, you can still see while well, we've come quite a way. I think on things like marriage equality and the likes, you still have. Uh, still elements of homophobia you still have um, when it comes to fertility issues we're one of the few countries in the world not to have any public funding for IVF and, and yet to regulate um, assisted human reproduction so th- there's a lot more to do and I hope I hope we can I hope everybody it was a very broad coalition of people um, but I hope we can kind of rekindle some of that energy and start how, to tackle some of those issues I want to come back to your current brief sure. but how is the how how is the what's the process for for a referendum becoming a referendum? Does 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 a minister have to bring it? So a minister has to bring a referendum bill, right? Okay. So the Dáil and Shannon have to basically vote to say we're going to have a referendum. But then also you don't have to do this bit, but it makes sense to do it. You would generally, as a minister, publish the draft legislation. So for if you vote to repeal, this here's is what, what we make it. the law. Yeah, um, and we decided to do both because 
And again, there was a debate about that at the time, but I felt it was really, really important to be able to show people, particularly on such a sensitive issue, what it would actually, it look actually like. Because I, it, it helped us debunk a lot of myths and that's the thing. I think politics doesn't like a vacuum, no. and so people will just start scaremongering. So then, this year, you changed brief. Did you get to choose this one? No, no, I didn't. And um, how hard is it to all of a sudden not be? A minister in one portfolio like is it easy to just like stop thinking about those things stop caring about those things and all of a sudden switch to higher ed- your current brief is higher education so with a long res- title it's further in higher education and I'll tell you why I think that's important in a second research innovation and science um, it's the brainchild of Michael Martin he had this view which I think is obviously right that uh, he had been the minister for education he'd been the minister for business he felt that there were issues in both departments that didn't get enough focus if you took elements of both combine them together you could have a kind of a powerhouse of a department to plan for our future, to look at. You, you, you can't deal with adult education whilst trying as a department to work out how you're going to reopen the primary schools safely or what the pupil-teacher ratio yes. should be. And a number of European countries have taken a similar step. He also thought that if you had a department that could kind of combine research, so look at what Science Foundation Ireland's doing, but also our universities are doing to tackle some big changes. So I, th- I think he was quite visionary in this regard. Um, and, 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 and that's kind of that role. The further and higher piece meant a lot to me because I think we have a kind of snobby attitude in Ireland to adult education that we need to debunk. Definitely. Um, like there's so many routes for people to get to where they want to get and to. And it's still a thing where you're just, it's just assumed that you're going to go to university. That's right. And, and like, then what we see is people, you know, and it works for some people and with great universities is not knocking them. But then you just see a high dropout rate. But you also see, we all learn differently. Um and we all and, and we all have different pressures in our lives. So some of us can't go for four years off to Dublin or Galway or somewhere else or Cork and study away. Some of us have kids. Some of us have uh, someone who's dependent on us to care for them. Um, some of us just our minds work in the way that we want to dip in and out. Some of us are in our 60s and we'd like to go back uh, and, <laughs> and do something. And that's good, too. So like it, and some of us like like and need maybe to earn and learn which is the apprenticeship model where you yes. actually get the kind of practical experience along with the education experience. So, yes, yeah, so and I'm really excited about the new brief, but it is um, it is a big change. And I suppose leaving during COVID, it, it, to answer your question, of can you kind of just switch off and say, thanks very much, lads, I'm done with that. Like, no, you can't. You I can't. mean, I had, um, I had the, the, the people in the Department of Health had nearly become like a family, you know, you'd take a bullet for them because I'd seen... Well, you'd been through a yeah. pandemic together. I exactly. mean, you were, you were in the middle of it. Yeah, you and, you're, and, you're and you become so kids. proud of them because they, like there's people whose names you know from this pandemic. So, you know, Tony Hoolan's name, brilliant person. Ronan Glynn, super, like these are amazing people who've done great work. Uh, Philip Nolan. I can't say enough about any of these people. But I also can't say enough about the people whose names you've never heard of. Yeah. Who 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 helped them do their magic, <laughs> if you know what I mean, who helped them get their press conferences ready, who who helped them work out how to effectively communicate what are often really complex issues, who do the hard graft in the labs and stuff. And I and, and I know them and I know their names. And uh, and they I'm really, really just very proud of them. And so I get a bit I get a bit protective of them when I hear what is often, you know, it's, it's important people criticize and evaluate, but I know how when when Ireland reviews how it dealt with the pandemic, there's no doubt there'll be lots of things we could have done differently. Of course there will. But I will always know, for as long as I'm alive, that it was never for a lack of effort or, or, or on their part or dedication on their part because they left nothing nothing in the dressing room. They just they just moved into the Department of Health or the HSE and they, 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 they and to this day are giving it their all, which is quite amazing. And then are you you're the one who leaves and they stay and a new like do they then or do do well, we've already said that civil servants stay, but do some people 
Like, are those people now working for Stephen Donnelly? Yes. Yes, okay. Yeah, and, they, and, 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 and that's right and proper. And, and, and for he continuity has, and everything. And he's a very hard job to do. And you don't want to be that kind of, you know, awkward character lurking in the background. <laughs> but you do feel passionate about it. And look, I'm, I'm honoured to still obviously be in the government and getting a chance to contribute a cabinet in relation to these things. And I still find myself glued to the the TV and the Neffet press conferences and the WHO feeds and, you know, reading about vaccines. But like your character, you probably would be anyway, even if you had never been the Minister for Health because you like the data of it. But you are invested even more because... That was yeah. your actual job. You just want to. You just want to. You just want the job to be done. Like you want to get to a point where, you just want to get to a point where people in Ireland can say, "God, we got through that awful time, and it was rotten. We all came together. We did our best, and now it's behind us." And you're just constantly kind of hoping and yearning and reading and trying to find any nugget of hope and optimism because we really need it. And like, one of the things we don't talk enough about is the effect this is having on all of our well-being. Um, so I tend to be quite positive and even in my public kind of messages to people I tend to always look for the the hope and the optimism because I think we need that but I'm really aware of the fragility of people at the moment like people are really fragile and why wouldn't they be which is why this Christmas conversation is getting so sharp it is and I think and without without being unhelpful in terms of my speculation around that because that'll be you know we'll have clarity on that shortly but but it, but that's exactly it. It's not that people. It's not that people keep talking about Christmas because you know for some kind of frivolous reason. It's because it's because what Christmas represents. I mean, Christmas represents a chance to see your family, a chance to see your friends, a chance to. It's also to get together. like the pagan version of it is like we're in the middle of winter. We need a time yeah. to like lighten up, meet people, yeah. give ourselves a break from. The that's depths right. of winter. That's right. And you know, people should know in this country because like we always tell, it's kind of back to the health stories, like we always tell people when, when things are bad and things are going wrong and it's important they hear that. But like we're actually doing very well. Like compared to other countries, still the country's doing really well. And that's, that is actually down to, it is down to kind of our, our, our makeup as a people, you know. Yeah. How can your business or workplace reduce its carbon emissions and what are the benefits? 180 Degrees is a podcast answering these questions by sharing the stories of people across Ireland working towards a cleaner energy future. They chat to people who are making a real difference in the areas of sustainable transport, energy in the home and in our communities. They hear how businesses and public sector bodies are cutting carbon emissions and how energy research is informing policy decisions. 180 Degrees is brought to you by the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, supported by the Government of Ireland. You can listen to 180 Degrees, the podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. I want to tell you about another podcast that is on the Headstuff Podcast Network. So take a listen to this trailer and see what you think. Hello, Joe Rooney here. Back in 2015, I recorded my first Potter Rooney. And since then, I've been chatting to people that I meet throughout my travels here and there all over the world including Sean Locke Mary Coughlin Frank Kelly Joanne McAnally Owen Colgan Shazia Mertza Aidan Gillen and Kautra Reardon but loads of people you'd never heard of who have very interesting tales to tell including the sadly no longer with us Boston based comedian Barry Crimmins who led a crusade against images of child abuse on the internet Tracy Carroll whose daughter Willow has the highest grade of cerebral palsy Drahda Homeless Aid Christine Volset, a Norwegian singer documentary maker who ended up hanging out with the young lads in inner city Dublin and riding bareback on a horse through the city streets. All these very interesting tales to tell and all you have to do is skip the first six minutes of me talking rubbish.
That's pateroni. Has your job changed because of COVID? Like how you do your job? Has that changed much? Do you think you'd be doing things differently in your current brief if COVID wasn't around? Yeah, I do. And it's it's kind of annoying me because like, it annoys everybody in Ireland because I, I want to be able to get out and do things. I want to yeah. be able to visit universities. I want to be able to visit research centres. I want to go down to training centres and see how we're going to upskill people to get back to work after COVID. And you're obviously limited in that. So because I'm a minister and a TD and I have commitments in the doll and stuff, I I obviously don't have to work from home all the time, but you are still working from home. And even when you're not working from home, you're you're doing all your meetings, looking down a, a lens of a camera. Lens. So, and this is the same for everybody. My sister changed jobs during the pandemic. I don't think she's ever set foot in the in the building of the company she works yeah, for. Some so people I know have never yeah. met their colleagues in real yeah, life. Like yeah. That. So it's it is it is kind of becoming a, a temporary norm, but it's definitely a it's definitely a different way of working. And, and look, some of it's some of it's good. You can actually get through a lot. You, you don't have to. You, know, you don't have to travel meetings. to Letterkenny to meet people in Letterkenny now and it's acceptable to meet people and that's good and then you can move from Letterkenny. Like yesterday I was, I did a meeting about the, the southeast and the northeast. You know, in normally you day. couldn't do that yeah. in a day. But but there, there's no substitute for kind of human connection either. What kind of things in your current portfolio are you excited about down the line like that we might see? It's a, quite a number of things. I mean, the literacy thing I'm 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 deadly serious about. I'm actually learning more about this Is every that something day. that you'd connect with like that that you'd be involved with the Department of Education because is that some people who have fallen through the net in primary and secondary school? Yes, but there's also a very distinct so absolutely so the better but but there's also there's also a very distinct piece of work we need to do in recognizing that there's a whole group of people who are adults who can't read and write. Now that's not that they sorry, not that they can't read and write, that they're they're having what they call functional functional illiteracy. So they might struggle to read the Panadol box. They might be able to read the ESB bill but not comprehend it fully. Or the big new, the big new one is digital skills and digital okay. literacy. You think because you can pick up your smartphone and look at Facebook that that's digital, you know, that you can use your digital skills. But of course it's not when all of a sudden you now have to work online or study online. So I do feel that if we want to have a truly inclusive society, we need to be really aware that there's a whole group of people who are getting locked out of participating fully. Equally, when we look at things like did a fascinating meeting the other day with the Irish Prison Service. And again, if you look at how do you break intergenerational cycles of deprivation, mm-hmm. you do it through you do it through education. education. You do it through education. And you don't just talk about the education of the prisoner. You talk about the mom at home with the three kids who desperately wants to make sure her kids don't go the way that their dad did. Yeah. Uh, so so I've, I have some exciting ideas in relation to that. And then also just, I suppose, Two two others. I want to change the conversation that we have, as we've already discussed, about further and higher education. So do I. There was no need for me to go to university. I hated it. Really? Absolutely hated it. Yeah. Like the UCC was brilliant. I loved the course. The people were lovely, but there was no need for me to go. I didn't like the experience. I didn't like the socialising. It made me really anxious. And I would have been much better going straight into my actor training or even just starting to work in theatres and, mm-hmm. and, and doing some sort of apprenticeship with it. I didn't end up doing an internship with a theatre company but there was just this assumption and like I'm one of those I'm the same age as you so like this Celtic Tiger generation where it was like just go to university pick a course it's free yeah. it'll be like just throwing money at you and then when I got into college the economy collapsed but like at that Celtic Tiger time it was just like yeah. just go why yeah. not get a free degree. Well that's the thing but I, I want like this has to be cultural because you need the mums and dads of Ireland, when they sit down with 
their son or daughter to say, here's your full range of options and we need to give the mums and dads that information. Yeah. So we need to not kind of kill off the conversation with that CAO form. What will I put on the CAO form? Yeah. We need to have a much broader conversation. And then the last piece, back to my disability piece, but we, we have to recognise that there's a whole group of people with disabilities that the conversation we're having with some of them, particularly people with intellectual disabilities, when they leave the school system is, what daycare place do you want next in the HSE? Not... Where, what do you want to do with your life? How do yeah. we help get you employment? How do we help you get the skills to have a meaningful adult life as well? And is that something that you're in charge of or is that something that then you would speak to Minister Rabbit about? Like, do you, because it's education, is it you or because the person involved is disabled, it's her? So both really, but I'm, but I, but I, 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 and I love working with government colleagues, but I, I hate this idea of kind of, Sometimes the phrase interdepartmental yeah. is somewhere you send things to die. Oh, right. right okay, so we'll set up an interdepartmental committee. Oh. Oh, like, the there's grants. We should all have interdepartmental conversations. But I am the minister for further and higher education. We have signed up to the youth guarantee at a European Commission level. And it says every adult young person in Ireland should have an opportunity to having meaningful education and access to skills post-school. It doesn't say every young person except the following groups of people, people who are now going to exclude. Yes. And, you know, so that's so it the is your responsibility, no matter is, what the person. No one can do anything on their own. No one's an island. But yeah, and I, I, so I want to drive some of these through. I don't want to just be a minister for their universities. Yeah. Or a minister for those of us who are already getting on grand in life. <laughs> I want to actually try and Help. shine a spotlight on issues that, that we just don't talk about um, for whatever reason. You know, they don't come up on the doorsteps, but they're real and and we all know people in our own families in our own communities who they affect and when so currently there's a coalition and Michal Martin is Taoiseach and Leo Radker mm. is Tónaiste but that's due to switch around in two and a half years or yeah, two now or whatever it is or something, yeah. so does that mean that will you when, when Leo Radker is Taoiseach again will you still be this or is there going to be a cabinet shuffle or so is that unknown it's, it's unknown but presumably when a new Taoiseach becomes Taoiseach there'll be a reshuffle of some description, oh, I would right. imagine. So in another two years, there'll be another... You could be out in your ear, you could be left at this job or you could be put in another job and that's politics. That is politics. The poor civil servants are like, ah, <laughs> oh, shaking their fists at <laughs> you. the poor politicians wonder what will I be doing in two years? But yeah. yeah you got to change yeah. the pace. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully COVID will be gone by then. Well, we live in hope, but I think it will. There's there's a vaccine on the way, I think. Yeah, we just had Luke O'Neill in and ah. uh, he was telling us that he thinks by next summer uh, electric picnic might happen. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> This is good. And at this rate, Luke will probably be invited to headline it. Yeah, he probably will. And he'd be well able to do it. I don't know if Tony Houlihan will approve of it, um, (laughs) but we can see. Um, What are your, how do you find your job, apart from like the work that you do, how do you find like being in politics in in a time of social media? Does that impact you at all? I mean, I... Because so many of people that I know and follow you are obsessed with you and kind of love you, I can't imagine you get too much hate, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, no, I do get a lot of it. <laughs> oh, God. And and I don't say that now, I kind of feel sorry for myself way, but because I, I, lo- I actually love social media. I'm not sure whether it's good for me or bad for me, but I actually, perhaps above that generation, but I, lo- I find it a way of being able to directly communicate with people. And I actually think it's kind of an important part of the job, telling people what you're at, what you're doing, yeah. letting them see. And so I, I enjoy it. And... But but there's a lot of bile on it. And my worry about it is this. And by the way, I don't say this to suggest I'm some sort of saint or to recuse myself from any of this before people think that I, I, I include myself in this criticism. It has it has helped us all demonize our opponents. Yes. 
and I Very black and, and white. I don't give myself a pass on that. I think my own party, I, I, I level the charge at lots of parties, including myself and my own party. But like we have, I think social media has helped us kind of dehumanize people because you can just kind of hide behind the things, shoot off an old tweet, calling somebody some horrific word. That you would never um, in a million years say on a doorstep. No. Like you would never, I bet you've never had that sort of bile thrown at you never, in never, person. Never, never, and, and And I think people in this country are generally Sound. kind of class and I get yeah. on, you know, I, like, I really enjoy getting out and meeting people. But, but it does, what's happening in social media now is beginning to creep in to political debate. And this is not just in Ireland. I mean, Trump, Brexit, you know, I, I mean, this sort of kind of coarse them and us. I even saw an article written the other day by some, somebody who said, you know, there's a them and us and the politicians are, are the, the them. them. No, we're not. We're the us. We're the, we are, we are. Literally though, like you're literally Literally us. <laughs> people from the community elected to represent other people. And, you know, if we do a bad job or you think we're shockingly bad at it, vote us out or run yourself or tell us or talk to us or... But but I do think there's a, there's a kind of coarseness now that's come into public life and public discourse that we have to call out. I think so because I've seen it like it's very clear in American politics, and you can often see that sort of and it's kind of violent and brutal language used about Trump or about the liberal left or all this. But it's starting to seep in yeah. to our politics and. I always thought, you know, Irish politics, grassroots, you know, we like I see you walking down the street. Hiya, Simon. Hiya, Leo. It's casual and people are safe, but it's starting to get very fractured. No, I think it is. And and I mean, when we're at our best, right? Uh, so one of the things that you asked me what I was proud of earlier, I talked about the repeal campaign. I mean, there were no party labels. We all just identified a big issue and we got on with it together and we fixed it. Public health, alcohol bill, something I brought in. Work to people across the political divide. COVID. COVID, yeah. Best example of everybody, not just politicians, but people of all sorts of different, you know, backgrounds, persuasions coming together. Now, that's not to be naive. I'm a practicing politician. There's some things I absolutely can't stand about the policies of other people. But I, but we all have to, including me, stop and pause the difference between criticizing a policy or demonizing a person. Mm-hmm. And and I'm worried about it. I'm really worried about it because I think I think the... I think I think if it if it's left unchecked, I think it brings us to a place that isn't who we are. I tried to say this in, in the doll recently on the motion of, of confidence on Leo, right? Without reopening that issue. I heard I heard this. We uh, all make mistakes. mistakes. And if they were gonna do this idea of jumping up and down and now this is not, not questioning political accountability, but the off with their head brigade that everybody, you know, that nobody ever makes a mistake. And if somebody does make a mistake, we absolutely castigate them and demonize them and and like I say that's that's not no one has a monopoly on that that applies to all parts of the political spectrum I think that the difference between it's dangerous because there's difference between holding someone accountable mm. and cancelling someone and if that's right. the that's a you've said it in a better way what I was trying to say but if it, and if the response to a mistake is to cancel someone we're going to be in and out of general elections every month for the rest of our lives because people make mistakes also People show poor judgment. Like, what what is sufficient? Is it okay to say, I'm sorry, there's due process, I'm going to do these things and then we'll move on. Now, we're talking about various things from from from, from that Leo issue to, to, to other things. And some things are mistakes and some things are criminal. And, you know, there's, there's a wide variety and there is... But when people, you know, the, who becomes the judges and juries? The judges and juries. Like, that is why we have a legal yeah, system. That's why yeah. we have due process. I think that's right. But I, I, I think just to take 
a step back from that. If we if we stop debating each other's policies, and by the way, there's loads of space to have rows and arguments in that space, right? If that's what we're looking for, there's loads of issues we disagree on and we can tease them out, debate them. But if we stop doing that and decide that the politics is just about calling each other names um, or creating caricatures of each other or trying to define our opponents um, in nasty terms, and like I say, there's no monopoly on this, but if we decide to do that, I think it's going to lessen the political debate and I think it'll actually push good people out of politics but I think it'll also actually the the danger then is that there's actually a disengagement on the issues I think I think you're right because I see when when even when political parties get bitchy and petty amongst themselves the public disengage it's just like oh you're just having a spat in public and the news you're taking up news headlines you're taking up newspaper coverage with your fights and now we don't know what's happening yeah in the news yeah. because it's just like two of ministers are fighting with each other about that's something. It. Yeah, that's it. Like, and you, and you just, you know, I mean, I, I go into I go into uh, schools when you were allowed to go into schools uh, before COVID and you'd, you'd meet lots of, um, even in primary schools and secondary schools and you'd ask the kids in the class, you'd say, you know, is anybody in or interested in politics? And, you know, the odd time someone might stick up their hand to give you a bit of a supportive <laughs> effort. Um, and then and then you'd, but most people would look at you kind of with kind of blank faces and then you'd say, well, hang on a second. Are, are you interested in whether you can go to college when you finish school? Hands would go up. Are you interested in climate? Hands would go up. Are you interested in helping, you know, people in vulnerable positions around the world? Hands would go up. Are you interested in whether you can buy a house? Hands would go up. So on and so forth. And I'm like to them, that's what politics is. Uh, uh, but if those of us in politics allow it to be defined by the punch and judy, shouting and roaring, name calling, they'll just switch off. They will. And, that, right. and that's, that's the choice we all have to make. I think the more it's called out in the terms that you called it out last week last week in the doll or you know just hide because I think people sometimes they maybe forget and it's like hang on let's not do this and some people do it intentionally and that's very overt and I think it's transparent and people are like I'm not going to believe you because you're just mm. clearly playing a game here but the more people are reminded hang on we're better than this come back to yourself yeah. <laughs> then maybe yeah. we won't go the way of America yeah, I hope not. Because and and I take some, you know, I, I think the Biden, actually the Biden kind of mantra around this is actually something we can learn from. He is a man who clearly is of a different generation to us. He's a man who has serious kind of convictions and views and is well able to call out political opponents. But there's kind of a humanity and a decency to him. And hopefully that will be a, a beacon of hope from the States rather than the you know. And closer to home, I think I heard uh, Minister Dunhu speaking on the Tonight Show um, in response to Piers Doherty and his criticism of the budget. And Pascal is someone who we've had on the podcast mm. who I just feel is so statesmanlike and never gets involved in this sort of pettiness. And his response to calling it out, being like, you wrote your criticism of my budget before I'd even written my budget was enough and said everything he needed to say in a, in the similar way to Biden. It's just like, I'm just not getting involved in this. Yeah, Pascal does it very well. I mean, he, he can... He can hold his own and debate with the best of them without without lowering the tone of the debate. Yeah. And that's what we all need to do. Before we let you go, is there anything that you would say to people who, like yourself, have 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 an issue in their own ha- house or in their own family and want to become like who might think about getting into politics but not are not too sure how to do it, whether they should or how to go about it? So firstly, please don't believe that you can't. So, like, I'm kind of a testament that anybody um, can do this. Um, like, 
absolutely anybody, if I've managed to do it, you can absolutely do it. If you're passionate about an issue, focus on that. Focus on it. Believe in it. Starting in your own and community. You starting in your own community. Whatever it is that makes you tick. And then find a vehicle. For, for, for some people, that'll be setting up an organisation. For some people, it'll be joining the residence group. For some people, it'll be a community council or a sports club. For others, it'll be a political party. For others, it'll be not a political party, but being an activist. But just do it because we need good people. And and we have to reject this cynicism of, ah, nobody cares, you can do nothing. My, my experience generally is when when bad things happen, it's generally out of ignorance rather than actual nastiness. Malice, yeah. Um, or malice, yeah, exactly. Most people in this country are good, decent people. And if you're passionate about an idea and present it to people in your own community, you will be shocked by how many people, or perhaps not shocked, but you'll be pleasantly surprised by how many people will be there willing to help you. And my other advice, particularly to young people, as somebody who has, you know, used to constantly be told in the early days, um, you know, learn, learn, learn to walk before you can run and now is not your time and oh, slow down there, Sonny. It's just baloney. Run, just start like, running. There, there is no time. Run, run as fast as you can. It, but, but once you have a passion and you know why you're running and you know where you want to get to with it. Minister Harris, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning into that episode. And if you enjoyed this episode, please, I'd be so grateful if you would share it on your social media or just tell one person about it. That is really the best way to get the message out there and find a bigger audience. Share it on your socials or um, give us a, if you can't do that, just rate us or review us wherever you get your podcasts. This week, as usual, our music is by Only Ruin. We are produced by the Headstuff Podcast Network. Our artwork is by Kahlo Gara and we record in the podcast studios. See you next week. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.